you might be looking at the evening scripture lesson and saying, that looks an awful lot like the passages and the sermon title that Dr. Naka preached this morning. And you'd be right, because <laughs> that is a misprint. <laughs> so we're going to actually get into our Bibles, uh, if you brought them with a copy of God's Word with you. And I'll, I'll allow you to use your phone or your iPad if that's what you want to do. But we're going to be in two Old Testament passages. Uh, we're going to read from Exodus 19, and then we're going to read from Deuteronomy 10. All right, two different passages, from, one from Exodus 19 and one from Deuteronomy 10. Exodus 19, I'll begin in verse 4. This is God's Word. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. If you'll flip to Deuteronomy chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 14 to 19 from Deuteronomy 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Thus ends the reading of God's word. I'd like to welcome again Dr. Victor, Victor Naka to come and preach God's word to us. Good evening. Uh, thank you for coming back. Uh, well, the last time uh, we were here, uh, I had just started serving with Mission to the World, um, and we were trying to organize and reorganize. Uh, I was on my own, um, and I would like to report that uh, we, we now have regional directors for each region. Uh, so we have a regional director for Southern Africa, another one for West Africa, another one for uh, East Africa. Uh, and they form um, the Sub-Saharan Africa Field Leadership Team. Uh, and I try to, to work with that team, provide leadership uh, with that team. Um, some of you already know that I, I am not American. Uh, I've never lived in America and so Mission to the World has uh, an African uh, leading a group of uh, missionaries, uh, and God has given us uh, grace in abundance uh, to do that. 
when, when we're not traveling, visiting the regions or coming to the U.S. for, you know, meetings, uh, we are part of Renewal Fellowship uh, Presbyterian Church Plant. Um, and we are like grandparents. Uh, Nurses and I, we are the oldest. Um, the, the church planter is the same age as our oldest daughter. And so we, we are now up to 50 times 70 uh, young people between the age of 35 going down, uh, young marriages, young professionals, um, and, and it has been wonderful um, just coming alongside. But you all know that when you have a bunch like that, uh, there is also a lot of baggage, uh, you know, marital problems, um, uh, confusion around balancing time and work. Uh, has God called me to ministry? So we end up doing a lot of coaching, a lot of counseling. Nurses works with uh, with women, um, and we praying that this year we'll be able to do more, uh, especially if we manage to reduce the amount of traveling uh, that we do. Uh, so we would invite you to be praying for us as we come alongside Renewal Fellowship, uh, especially the church planter. His name is Sikhe, uh, and his wife's name is uh, Lutabo. Um, if you can, you know, pray for us as we come alongside them. Now, to our message for, for tonight, looking at those two passages of Scripture. If I run out of time, I will not look at the second passage, um, but... Uh, I hope, however, to make references uh, to it. Again, we're asking the question, what does the Lord require of us? Uh, We talked about um, the land between and the fact that God has called us to to serve in the land between as we wait for the second coming of Christ. Uh, And for tonight, what does the Lord require of us? What does the Lord require of us? I was uh, looking at the uh, report that was done by the Cultural Research Center at uh, Arizona Christian University. And this is what they say about the, uh, uh, the state of American Christianity. Uh, they say this, American Christianity is rapidly conforming to the values of a post-Christian secular culture. Most stunning in the research is the radical departure by evangelicals from traditional scriptural teachings and historical reliance on the Bible. Evangelicals are rapidly embracing secularism, with a majority, 52%, rejecting absolute moral truth, 75% believing that people are basically good rather than the biblical view of humans having a sin nature, And 61% admitting they no longer read the Bible on a daily basis. One third to one half of evangelicals embrace a variety of beliefs and behaviors in direct conflict with long-standing evangelical teaching. And this is according to the American Worldview Inventory of 2020. But I want to say tonight, uh, it is to such a world as we think again about the land between, the broken world, confused world, it is to such a world that we have been called. And we have been called neither to abandon hope. Why? Because the future belongs to the kingdom of God. 
nor to desert our mission. Why? For Christ still sends us into the world as the Father has sent him. Christ sends us into the world as salt and light. And so what does following Jesus in the land between demand of us today? And to help us answer this question, I would like to reflect on those two passages of Scripture uh, that we read uh, this evening, beginning with Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. I'm sure most of you realize that every time we talk about Jesus and Scripture, Jesus and the Bible, well, the, the Bible Jesus had was not the New Testament. It was the Old Testament. And so when you read Exodus 19, this is the great commission of the Hebrew Bible. And when you read these verses, you need to realize that they're sandwiched between two great events in the history of Israel. They've just come out of Egypt after centuries of slavery and genocide. And they're about to receive the law on Mount Sinai. And this is what Yahweh himself says to them through Moses uh, in verse 4. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Perhaps this is the reason why we must never make the mistake of thinking that the Old Testament is just about the law And the New Testament is all about grace. From beginning to to the end, as we read Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning right to the end, Yahweh's dealings with his people are dealings of grace. It is Yahweh who takes the initiative. It is he who, as we read in this text, who has carried the people of Israel along like a mother eagle, carrying her young. It is Israel, if Israel exists at all as a people, it is because of Yahweh's unmerited, undeserved compassion for them. And their response to all this is this sheer gift of grace. Their response to this sheer gift of grace is obedience. Uh, We read, if you obey me fully, And keep my commandment, keep my covenant. You will be my treasured possession out of all the nations. And he goes on to say, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Just as Yahweh himself is holy, just as Yahweh himself is different, just as Yahweh himself is distinct, And so the people who have come to know Yahweh must be distinct. They must be different. And they are to be a priestly kingdom. The the priests in ancient Israel were those who stood between God and the people. uh, And they interceded for the people before God. And they taught the people the ways of God. The primary calling of the priest was to teach the law. And the law was a summary of the character and the purposes of God. The character and the purposes of Yahweh for his world. 
So just like the Israelite priests taught the people the ways of Yahweh, Israel as a whole, Israel as a nation, were to be priests among the nations of the world. Not just individuals, but Israel as a nation. They were to be priests among the nations of the world. They were to model the ways of Yahweh before a watching world so that the nations of the world would be attracted to Yahweh. And many were attracted to Yahweh. So notice that what Yahweh is doing in Israel doesn't belong to some private area that we call the Israelite religious experience. Yahweh is dealing with them on the public arena, on the public stage of international politics. And so when the nations see what Yahweh is doing, when the nations see what Yahweh is doing, doing with Israel as a people, as a nation, when the nations see what Yahweh is doing with Israel, and they see Israel's obedience to Yahweh, the nations begin to ask questions. And in response to those questions, Israel will tell their story. The story of Yahweh who created all things. So notice that if Israel is obedient to God, she will have a high profile. She will have a visibility before other nations. Not that she seeks visibility or publicity, but if Israel is obedient to the covenant law, a law that was unique in all its socioeconomic and political dimensions, if Israel was obedient to these laws and institutions that Yahweh gave her, then she would stand out among the nations of the world. She would be a different kind of people. And that was Yahweh's commission and calling to Israel. We must not think this was limited to the Old Testament. Jesus taught his disciples the same. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, he said, You are the light of the world. You stand out. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And he went on to say, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify God. And Peter, in his first epistle to Christians scattered around the Mediterranean, he said to them, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Remember, he was not referring to Israel. He was now referring to the church. And so we see in Peter the same language of Exodus 19, but now applied to this multinational Christian community, Christians from all over. And a little bit further on, he goes on to say, live such honorable lives among the nations, so that even though they insult you as evildoers, they may glorify God on the day he visits us, and when they see your good works. And what are these good works that he's talking about? How is Israel called to be obedient to Yahweh? And for that we turn to the second passage in Deuteronomy 10 verse 14 to 19. 
Uh, I'm doing very well in terms of time. <laughs> These verses, if you read them again and again, you notice they are packed with rich theology. And they sum up the whole theology of the Old Testament. And indeed, they sum up the world view of Israel. Uh, when you read verses 14 and 17, they go together and they speak of who Yahweh is. And then verses 15 and 18, they speak of what Yahweh does. Something extraordinary, something unusual. And then verses 16 and 19, they spell out what Yahweh requires. So let's begin with who Yahweh is. Verse 14, the entire universe... All that is, seen and unseen, belongs to him. He is the cosmic owner. Not only the earth, but the whole world belongs to him. He is not some mighty tribal deity in the desert. He is the owner of all that is. He is the owner of all nations, all peoples, all entities. And then verse 17, Yahweh, your God, is God of gods. Not only does the physical universe belong to Yahweh, even the spiritual universe, all peoples, all entities, spiritual universe belongs to Yahweh. Whatever spiritual beings the nations might worship, Yahweh is supreme. He has no rivals. Uh, that's why Jesus is not uh, Jesus Christ the Great, like Napoleon the Great. Well, Jesus is the only one. There is no other. He has no rivals. He is the cosmic owner. He is the sovereign ruler. Yahweh shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. He is not a God you can twist around your little finger. There are no religious tricks you can learn to manipulate him. He is not a fertility god like the Canaanites' gods. He is the creator. And then, what does Yahweh do in verse 15? Verse 15, he stoops down to love a particular people. A particular people. Yes, this God who owns all peoples. We're told he set his heart to love your forefathers and chose you, their descendants, out of all peoples. Your forefathers, Abraham the coward, Isaac the weak parent, Jacob the schemer and deceiver. These ugly, unattractive men were the ones on whom Yahweh set his affection. Nothing special about them. And you, their descendants, you're not any better. Rebels in the desert, this collection of half-formed tribes, Yahweh has set his love on you in a way that he has not loved other people. But the early chapters of Deuteronomy, if you read them, they tell us that Yahweh is also at work in the histories of other nations. He is the one behind their migrations. He is the one behind their conquests, even though they don't acknowledge him. 
And yet, Yahweh is doing with Israel what he has not done with any other nation. Because there are no other nations where he is at work for the sake of other nations. They are called to be vehicles, to be bearers of Yahweh's love. It is important to keep the balance of verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, you notice, speaks of Yahweh as the universal Lord to whom all peoples belong. And verse 15 speaks of God's particular election and redemption of a particular people. If we lose that tension, then we end up with two equally unbiblical extremes. On one hand, we will tend towards universalism. In other words, we blur the distinction between the people of God and the world of God. And the, the world of God is made up of people who are not yet the people of God. We end up and we can so stress God's particular electing love for the church that we give the impression that God is only concerned about the church and he has no time for the world. Or God loves only the church and not those outside the church. And often, you know, as Christians, we forget very quickly where God found us. We forget that once upon a time we were not God's people. And so we end up thinking God loves only the church and not those outside the church. And that is exclusivism, which is just as heretical as universalism. God loves us for the sake of the world. God loves us for the sake of the world. Israel's election is for the sake of the non-elect. The gospel is for the world. The gospel is for the world. Well, we refer the church to a hospital, isn't it? This is the place where those who are sick and broken come to. Not those who are clean and perfect. The gospel is for the world. And that's the reason why we want to be careful that we don't come across as though we have this message that the world is not welcome here. The gospel is for the world. The New Testament writers apply this language to Jesus of Nazareth. They speak of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They see in this figure of Jesus... The story of Israel coming to its climax. Jesus embodies in his person what Israel was called to be. An obedient son who through his obedience would be a light to the nations. But they also see not only Jesus as the embodiment of Israel's story. But as the incarnation of Israel's God. That in Jesus, Yahweh himself has come into his world. Not just sending the prophets, but he came himself. That Jesus 
God has come himself. And so the challenge for us New Testament Christians is to witness to the uniqueness of what God has done in Jesus of Nazareth. And to put it in another way, how do we relate what God has been doing in other nations and their histories? And we hear theologians talk about this. That you know, every culture, every tribal group, they have some knowledge of God. They have some understanding of God, you know, general revelation. Well, the question is, how do we relate what God has been doing in all these nations and cultures and tribal groups? How do we relate that with what God has done in his son, Jesus Christ? How do we relate that to what God has done decisively, once for all, in Jesus of Nazareth? And that is the challenge we face today. To bear witness to what God is doing in the world and bring that into relation to what God has done in Jesus of Nazareth that he has not done in any other person or any other event. So Yahweh stoops down to love a particular people. But Yahweh also defends the orphan and the widow and the alien. In verse 18, here is a unique vision of God. And I can bet you, you can search all the religions of the world and all the philosophies of the world. And you will never come across a picture of God like this. The power of Yahweh is linked to powerlessness, to the weak, to the vulnerable, to the defenseless people in society, the marginalized, the nobodies, all the things that we don't want to be. The power of Yahweh is linked to powerlessness because they had no defender Yahweh becomes their defender. Yahweh becomes the voice of the voiceless. Israel received from Yahweh unique institutions. um, Institutions that marked her out from other nations. Institutions like the Sabbath, not only one day a week, but one year in seven. Then the Jubilee, every 50, 50 years. And what all these unique institutions had in common was this. They were designed to protect the weak and the vulnerable in Israel against the ruthless greed of the rich and the powerful. And so the index of justice in Israel was to what extent the weak and the vulnerable were brought into community. To what extent were the doors wide open for these marginalized people to come in. And this perhaps is how God gauges the health of the nation. He looks at the way we treat prisoners, the way we treat the physically and mentally afflicted and disabled, the unborn, the unemployed, and the unemployable even, the poor in those no-go areas of the city. Yahweh links his cause with theirs. And if we are the people of Yahweh, then we are called to be the voice of the voiceless. 
and to use the gifts he has given us to articulate their cries. But especially to keep our doors wide open so that they know that this can also be their home. I think that's the reason why idolatry and social injustice went together in Israel. When Israel forgot Yahweh, Israel also turned her back on the institutions that Yahweh gave her. And Israel began to imitate the political and commercial practices of other nations. Israel lost her economic and political distinctiveness. And that is why when Yahweh, every time Yahweh sends these prophets, they talked not only about idolatry, they also talked about social injustice. They spoke for the weak and the powerless. And as I come to the end, what then does Yahweh require? Well, verse 16, he requires repentance. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, Yahweh says. And the parallel in verse 19, in the same breath, he says, Love the alien, therefore, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Israel had forgotten very quickly that they were aliens in the land of Egypt. And notice the logic. Love the aliens because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. It is Yahweh's nature to love the aliens. You were aliens in Egypt. So Yahweh loved you. And now that you know Yahweh, the way you show that you know him is by loving the aliens in your midst. Let me conclude by asking the question once again. What does following Jesus demand of us today? We are called to be kingdom people. We're called to practice the values of God's kingdom. That's what God was calling Israel to. To practice the values of his kingdom. As taught and modeled by Jesus himself. Breaking down social barriers. Practicing radical forgiveness. Turning the other cheek. Generosity to the poor. Loving even the enemy. Well, we are also called to be contrast people. The world around us is corrupt and dark. And followers of Jesus can make a difference. Just as salt and light does. The salt and light metaphors carry two implications for the church. One, we must penetrate society. You had this morning. Not withdraw from it. Penetrate. Salt must be rubbed into rotting meat. And we must also retain our distinctiveness within society. We must be in the world, but different from the world. Maybe this is the reason why often we are even scared to tell people at our place of work that we are believers, or at least that we go to church. We're scared because maybe there is no difference. We think like them, we talk like them, we spend like them, we eat like them, we panic like them. And there's no difference. We are called to be contrast people. 
if there is no real difference, we become part of the problem ourselves. And thirdly, we are called to be praying people. Followers of Jesus must be people of prayer as he was. We must take seriously the challenging political significance of the Lord's Prayer. I don't know, you know if you've ever stopped before praying the Lord's Prayer to think about what it means. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. That is an astonishing prayer. That the rule and will of God should operate on earth, not just up in heaven or eventually. Do we act in relation to that prayer in our political opinions and decisions as citizens, as voters, as parents, as children? Do we search the scriptures to see what God's kingdom means or what God's will is in relation to social, economic, and political life, work, the law courts, government? The Bible has plenty to say on all these things. And when we have done all our biblical thinking, do we pray for the values of God's kingdom? And the will of God to be upheld on earth, in our city, in our nation, in our neighborhood. Do we become restless at all when we walk around and we notice our environment is far from the will of God that we pray for? Or we become so used, you know, familiar uh, and I say, you know, for us back home, uh, you have, you know, destitute people, you have uh, unemployed people trying, you know, everybody's trying to sell something. And you get so used to this that you, you walk past them, you feel nothing, you think nothing, you see nothing. Well, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you give us grace, grace to endure, grace to serve, yes, grace for salvation, grace to engage with our communities, grace to courageously be salt and light. We pray, dear God, that as we think and pray about the community where Trinity is located, that, Lord, you'd give us a burden a burden for our community, a burden for our city, the Lord would cry out to you that your will would be done in this environment as it is done in heaven and that your name would be glorified. Amen.